Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. This video is so new that I don't even know when I should stand up anyway. Uh, seems like I've got to get the timing better. Morning, Hope Rock Church. It's good to see everybody. Just you got the hair down today. It's flowing in the wind. I love it. Huh? I wish I had hair like him. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I want to just maybe start before we get into anything. We've just got a couple of things we want to do this morning. The first is I want to introduce this local church to a good friend of our church, and his name is Travis. Travis, come on up. Uh, if you don't know Travis, um, many of you will know Travis. Many of you may have heard of Travis. Many of you have spent time with Travis. Travis is our partner in the nations. Literally, Travis leads our church in Roatan. He's also our connection to the island of Roatan. And I just want to honor Travis this morning in front of everybody because he has been the most amazing partner to work with in the nations that I've ever worked with personally. He is open, he's hospitable, he's welcoming, and just the heart that he has for that nation and for the island of Roatan just blows my mind. And so we as a church are looking forward to the many years ahead of partnership that we're going to build with Travis. But what I've asked Travis to do is just to give us a quick, short introduction to Travis, his beautiful wife, Tish. She's amazing as well, just so everyone's clear she couldn't be here today, Uh, and just what they're doing. So just... Have a listen. Travis, over to you. Great. Just go where you need to. Well, it's good to be here. I uh, just want to bring you greetings from uh, the island of Roatan, from Honduras, from your brothers and sisters in Christ and the church there. Uh, they send their greetings. Uh, certainly Dylan and Crystal and, and all those on the island would, would love to be here and, and uh, show their love and appreciation for you guys. But uh, just to give you a little bit of background, that is my better half there, and uh, we've been on the island of Roatan for nine years now, uh, serving there. Uh, we uh, have been blessed to be a part there. We came from a, a town fairly similar to Austin in many ways, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and moved down there with our four kids, uh, 10 through 13 at the time. They're all grown and gone, and I'm up visiting them here, but the the things I've learned there uh, that I just want to share real quickly here is I've learned uh, how much I didn't know uh, and how much I didn't understand. I didn't think I would gain a lot from the people in Roatan. I was that proud when I went down there, and that was wrong because I've learned more from them than I've ever uh, given uh, over there. And the other thing that I've learned, and you're going to see from some of the ministries here, is the power of Jesus, the power of the gospel to transform lives, and not only transform lives to be free uh, from the sins that were holding them down, that had them in bondage, but then to launch ministries out of it is what we're seeing, and uh, it's just amazing to see some of what God is doing there. So I'll show you a few of those things here. Uh, got the next uh, slide there. So. We focus, uh, we have a number of different areas that we focus, and if you don't know, Honduras is the poorest country in the Americas. So in this hemisphere, we're number one. So you have to have goals, and so that's kind of where it is. Um, but we were number two, now we're number no, number one. Uh, but we are in, ch- we have church uh, plants that we have. Uh, our church is the one that I lead. It's an English-speaking church, and we have two church plants that we help out with. My wife is a counselor, 
and uh, she does counseling on the island. There's the dump ministry. So if you've been to Roatan or visited on a cruise or something, you, you've seen a lot of the beauty of it, but we call it kind of Las Vegas in India. You know, you have one area that's like Las Vegas, million dollar resorts and all that, and you go two miles and it looks like India. And so there's a lot of draw from the mainland for people to find jobs. And so people will save up all their money, buy a ferry ticket to get over the island, and then not have any other job. And so they wind up destitute on the streets, and they go to the dump to find recyclables, to pick out glass and uh, aluminum, whatever they can sell to support their families. Uh, they make maybe $35 a week for a whole family working six, seven days a week. Okay, um, so we've had a ministry there of getting them in school and of also providing a gospel message. We go there once a week or once every two weeks, uh, depending on the time, share the gospel, give a meal, and uh, help encourage them to get involved in a local church that's there. A local pastor leads that. Uh, there's the drug and alcohol rehab, which I'll show you, uh, and we'll talk about, and then the children. Family ministries, you guys visited, uh, if you came with one of the teams, you visited Crystal's ministry and uh, saw that, and I'm going to show you a picture of there. And then there's Estralitas, which our next team in November is going to be visiting. They have gone from 35 kids in the inner city, uh, the largest city on Roatan, and now they have 75 kids, a lot of malnourished kids, uh, a lot of kids that uh, don't, they're just kind of let let free to run around uh, during the day and not much direction. So next. Uh, so this is, you guys uh, helped build the Sunday school room. Uh, they helped put up the walls, one of the teams did. And then this is the finished product. They had their first Sunday school this past Sunday. And so thank you for that. <clears throat> and the next. Okay, so this is the rehab started out. Um, in Coxon Hole for a little bit, then it was out of Dylan's house and had one or two people. They've been going three years now. They've had over 100 graduates. And uh, this is the building. Uh, the, so that's the area that they have right now. That's all the dorm areas. So they can hold about 30 students now. They've got, I think, 22 in currently. And we've had about five graduate in the last week. Um, I'm going to give you a couple... Uh, some of the graduates here, uh, just to give you an idea of what God is doing. Um, Don Herman, uh, he just graduated a couple weeks ago. He was 50 years on the street, alcohol, uh, 50 years on the street. He's set free. He's staying in the rehab. He, he lost all his family, and his family now is the rehab, and he's staying there. Uh, Hondo is just graduating. Hondo was what, what they're getting is the mayors of the big towns are sending the worst of the worst over to the rehab from all over Honduras. So this guy came from Guanaja. He had gotten in a fight with the mayor of Guanaja, and they sent him over to the rehab, and the mayor paid for him to stay in the rehab. Uh, and uh, he's graduating this next week, and he's set free, and he was 40 years, 40 years addicted to crack. Uh, 40 years on the street, addicted to crack. Barney, uh, he graduated a couple times. He's in our church every Sunday. You'll see him if you come. He was 30 years addicted to crack. He lost his family. His daughter in the States told him, you will never see your grandkids again, ever. And he's, uh, he got set free. Uh, he came to Christ. His brother gave him a job. He has a house that was given to him, uh, also by his brother. And his daughter is coming this next week with his grandkids. So... Um, one more, there was a admiral, well, I'll tell you, uh, Crystal, 
who uh, leads me into the next one, but Crystal was on the streets. She was the first graduate from the rehab. Uh, she was on the streets 15 years and uh, addicted to crack, uh, along with her husband as well. Uh, this is when she graduated, and many of you met her with her kids' ministry. She has launched a kids' ministry, and she has 50 kids. Uh, when the, she started, the kids had sores. They were malnourished. All of them are healthy now. And they're getting fed six days a week by the ministry she has. And she's teaching them the Bible. They're memorizing Bible verses. And they're uh, singing uh, praise to God. And she's transforming that community in Mud Hole. And uh, that's because of what God is doing in transforming lives. Not only to transform the lives, but lead them into serving and uh, with the power of the gospel in ministry. So uh, that's a picture of... Uh, the, the kids there, and right where that is is the next slide. This is last Thursday, a couple days ago. Uh, this is the new kitchen for the children's ministry that's being built and a covered area for so she can do ministry during rainy season, which starts next month. So, And thank you guys for supporting that as well. The next one, uh, that, this is Estralita. So you guys are going to see Estralita's ministry down in Coxon Hole. She's, got, she's gone from 35 kids to 75 kids, and she's doing a similar ministry, feeding program, uh, taking care of their medical needs, and reaching out to the families that are there in the center of Coxon Hole right by the rehab. Uh, so uh, you'll, you'll meet uh, her and see that. So the next... Okay, so upcoming mission trips, uh, November 19th through 24th and February 16th uh, through 21st. There's going to be a children's ministry focus. We're still going to do a little bit of construction on the November team. The February team is going to be a construction focus, but there will be some kids' ministry that's done during that as well. So we'd love to have you down. In uh, almost the last two years, we've had uh, five teams cancel on us uh, that were going to come and help the ministries down there. Uh, you guys, we've had four teams come to the island, and you guys sent two of them. And you guys are sending the next two. So we really are thankful for that. And I just want to say thank you. During the COVID lockdown, Honduras had one of the longest and strictest lockdowns in the world. Uh, we were eight months. We were allowed to go out of our house once every two weeks. Um, not any on the weekends. And there were few people that contacted us or checked on us. Marco, Charlie, <clears throat> it was really appreciated. They helped us with the food distribution uh, that was going on. We were able to feed 3,000 people per month for the eight months of the lockdown uh, because of your generosity and your support, and we really appreciate you. So thank you. Wow. God is good. He gets all the glory, and you guys make it possible. So hallelujah. Uh, can I ask the Adams family, I love calling you that because it's so cool, the Adams family and the Dellhouses to please come up here to the front. Uh, last piece of family, family business before we get into this morning's text and then we'll be here for the next five hours or so, so hope you brought lunch because it is Labor Day, right? You know that on Labor Day we preach six hours a day. Just kidding. Don't be scared. We are a church that loves family. Uh, we love welcoming in new family. These two families have become friends to us and to this local church. You've probably all met them by now because they've been here for a while. They've both done the, our DNA course. Uh, I say course, it's more like uh, getting to know Hope Rock, really. Uh, it's not about us getting to know them. It's about them deciding whether this is where they want to be. Uh, and so what they've done is gone and prayed after that. They've sought the Lord and believe that this is where God wants them planted for the rest of their lives. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> for the next season. 
and so we're grateful to have them because both of these families come with great giftings, great potential, and they add value to our community, not because of what they can do, just because of the gift that God's deposited in them. And so we want to celebrate them this morning. We want to invite them into the family. The reason why we do this publicly is not so that we can make a fool of them or really make them feel awkward and uh, everyone to stare at them. It's because we want everybody to know that this is family. You know, this is who is part of this family, and so we expect that our local church family will love on them, will pray for them, will be committed to them, and will be looking after them. We as the eldership team, when we invite people in, make a covenant with them. And that goes for the deacons as well. We covenant with them to pray for them, to honor them, to look after their family, to help them with their kids if need be, to help them when times are difficult. And at the same time, we ask that they... They don't have difficult times, any one of them. They're just amazing people. But we ask that they would help us and pray for this local church. And so that's what this is about. It's really not about making a spectacle of this. And it's not so you can know how much we're growing. It's so that we can be praying for them. So can I ask some of the deacons to come up, lay hands on them. I'm going to stand here and we're going to ask everybody in the church just to lift up your hands towards them. If you are new to Hope Rock Church and uh, want to do our DNA, there's another one coming up on the 18th as well. Again, it's an opportunity for you to know whether this is where God wants you. Um, And so, Father, I thank you for these two amazing families. I thank you, Lord, that you are continuously building your church, that you're in charge of that process, not us. And so, Lord, I thank you for the gifts, the potential, Lord, that you've stored in these two families and for what they are going to bring to this local church. We know that we are stronger because of them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just release gifting in them uh, and connect them and knit them into this body. I pray, Father, also that we would be a church who honors and protects them, who prays for them, who loves on them, uh, and always, you know, has them on the back of our minds and on our hearts all the time. I pray that you protect these children and let them feel welcomed and integrated into this local church too. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Ellie? Okay. By the way, this is Catherine. If you guys, uh, you know, last week I was speaking about her. Now she's actually here. Um, she likes to show up at church once in a while. Um, just kidding, love. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Woo! One last announcement. Sorry. Because we're out of family. Tim, you can keep quiet. Um, I just want to celebrate Chris. You know, and Mary, they stand up. They got engaged this week. Um, and so let's, uh, if, you, if you want to give them a high five after the meeting and say congratulations, we're super excited for you guys, and we're so grateful to see what God's doing in both of your lives. So congratulations from this local church. All right, let's jump into this morning. Last week, Sunday, we kicked off our sort of kingdom value series. We looked at the value of community. And last week, I shared a word with us. I said that I felt like the Lord had been speaking to me as well as you know, a number of other people about the fact that God wants His church back. He wants His church and our hearts back. And whilst last week we looked at the value of community and that statement definitely affects us as a local community, what we have to realize is it has much broader implications as well because that statement impacts and affects the global church. And so this morning we're going to talk about that value, the value of the church. Uh, When I say the church, I mean the big C church. When I say that, I mean the universal church. I mean every single church in this world combined together into what Jesus Christ calls his bride. That's the church that we're going to be talking about this morning. And Jesus wants that church back. And whilst we could spend probably, you know, weeks, months, even just looking at the doctrine of the church and, you know, what the separation is between church and state and all of these fancy, cool things. I felt like as I was preparing, the Lord just told me to focus on one thing, which was, by the way, just extremely frustrating because I had an entire preach prepared. I had 
many points. It was going to be awesome. I thought, yes, this is going to be power. And then the Lord just like, just cut it all out. And I want you to preach on one thing in specific. And so I have no idea, honestly, how today is going to go. And so I'm just trusting that God will do what he needs to do this morning. The one point that God really labored on my heart to preach on is the fact that the church is the only mechanism that God has ordained on this earth to effect change on the earth. That's it. There is no other secret service, secret agency. There is no other force on this earth that is going to effect the change that God wants to effect on this earth besides the church. And we have to remember that. We have to understand that. And so you cannot not want to know about the church and not want to be a part of the church. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. Paul calls it a gift, a grace, an opportunity, something that was handed over to him for free. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, to take this gospel to both to the people that are near to us, but also to those that are far from us. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. We're going to speak about mystery a little bit this morning. But the mystery is who created all things so that through the church, and this is important, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may, may not, may, might now be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in heavenly places. God chose the church to bring the manifold wisdom and secrets that God had stored up for eternity. And guess who he wants us to make them known to? To the rulers, to the powers, to the principalities, not necessarily just humans. The church doesn't need to know about Jesus. We tell everyone about Jesus, right? Let me rephrase it. The church needs to know about Jesus. But who also needs to know about this victorious king are the enemy and all of his minions. The church is the vehicle to push back the gates of hell. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so let's bow our heads. I want to pray for us real quick and then we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you that you would guard my mouth, especially this morning, since you've given me a very distinct word to share. And I pray that I wouldn't go off track and I wouldn't make this about me or anything about about that. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak clearly through me. And if I say anything that's wrong, don't let anybody hear it. Uh, Let them just remember all the good stuff that you want to say to them. I pray that you would move Holy Spirit and touch us today. We are expectant for signs, wonders, and miracles to follow the preaching of this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Last week Sunday, we reminded ourselves just quickly of some um, some facts about the local church. The local church is not a community organization. It's not a social club. It's not a public speaking venue. It's not a venue that we go to to hear from gifted preachers, celebrity pastors or gifted worship leaders, the church is the people of God, right? So all of us combined are the church. If this building had to disappear tomorrow, we would still be the church. The church is not about this building. It's not a place we go to. It's not a destination. It's who we are, right? But in addition to that, it's also uh, people living in and out of this relationship of community. In other words, there is a an aspect of our lives where we are doing life together. We center around the cross. There is one head to this church, and his name is Jesus. And so all of us, as the church, center around Jesus Christ. And what do we center around for? We center around to know Christ and to make him known. We follow the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment, love each other, but first of all, love God. Get to know him. Great commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded and know this, I will be with you to the end of the age. And so that stands true for the local church, right? That's what the definition is. But if that's the definition for the local church and the global church is really a conglomeration of local churches, then the mission of the global church is exactly the same as the local church. 
That's why we love having people like Travis in our local church. Why? Because this is the church. The church in operation is us here in Lakeway, Texas, in our little 78734 bubble, and Travis in Roatan doing the exact same thing, just in different places. And we have the ability and the privilege to spur each other on to greater exploits. And so Travis has his local community. We have our local community. And together we are far stronger in advancing the gospel. And so the question that I have to ask us this morning is, do we see the church in the world, the big church, the big C church, do we see this global church operating in the fullness that God has called it to operate in? And that's a real question. I mean, you're welcome. You don't have to answer it out loud, but you need to think about this stuff. Do we see the church by and large, operating in what God has called it to operate in. And I say this, understanding that I am a part of the global church. And so I'm not speaking about them and us. I'm speaking about us as the church. Do we operate in the fullness of what God has called us to? And I have to say, unfortunate as it is, that I don't see that happening. And the reason why I don't see it happening is because we see a divided, distracted, and sometimes defeated church in operation. And I can say that to you because here's the measure of that. How do we know the church is operating in a divided, defeated, and distracted manner? Not necessarily every local church. I'm speaking collectively now. I can see it because what I've noticed is that instead of the church influencing the world, the church is becoming like the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And so churches, when they start allowing themselves to become like the world, look like the world, taste like the world, speak like the world, seem like the world because it's more comfortable for the world to palate, there's a problem. And so I want us just to deal with the elephant in the room. We need to be a church that does everything in our power, not to keep pointing fingers at the global church and to not to keep pointing fingers at other churches but to point the fingers to ourselves and say, what can we do to play our part to make sure that the global church stays on track? Now, you might think, well, we can't do anything. Surely we can't do anything. We're just a tiny little church here in Lakeway. I mean, what are we going to do? How can we impact the nations? The truth of the matter is God has given us a sphere of influence. God has given Travis a sphere of influence. And when we fail in our sphere of influence, it impacts those around us. And so the best thing we can do to make sure that this global church is no longer defeated, distracted, or disillusioned is we can become the church that God wants us to become. And not only that, we can maintain that we never allow ourselves to be influenced by the world. When we see it happening, we correct what we're doing. We allow people to speak into our lives, to hold up the mirror to Hope Rock Church and say, you know, Hope Rock Church, you're not really holding up the ideals of the kingdom very well in this area, and we need to be able to take it. And we just focus on ourselves so that we can bless everybody else around us. And we trust people to do that in our lives. I trust Travis to come speak into our life. Other people that we connect with and we are partner with that will come and speak into our lives just like they expect us to speak into their lives. And so that's our mandate for this local church is to stay connected to what God's doing. You know, we see this uh, in Revelations. In Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's seven letters written to seven churches. Jesus authors these letters, gives them to John the Revelator. He writes them down in the book. What's interesting about those seven letters is of the seven churches that Jesus writes to, there's only two churches really that just get a clean bill of health. And when I say clean, it's almost Smyrna and Philadelphia get really good reports. Philadelphia the best. But the rest of them get some exhortations and they get a whole bunch of rebukes. This is what I have against you, Jesus says. And when you look at those rebukes, what you'll notice is every single one of them is directly related to the culture pressing into the church. 
It's got nothing to do with what they were doing for the kingdom or whether they were advancing the gospel. What Jesus is saying is you're starting to look like the people around you again. There's one church in particular, which we all know of, the church in Laodicea, right? We all know the scripture. It's the scary scripture. If you're a church leader, man, that's what you get taught. Like if you want to be fearful of God, you just read this. Revelation 3, 15. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. <clears throat> Those are very graphic words. Very sort of uh, interesting words. Very deep cutting words. And now I have to ask you a question. Do you know that this church, the church of Laodicea, if you read about them, they thought that they were doing pretty well. In fact, they were extremely wealthy. They were prosperous. And the church was growing. And so in their minds... They thought everything was good. And here we have Jesus responding to that particular church and saying, hang on, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth unless you make some adjustments. And so what's the disconnect? How is it that they could see themselves as being thriving and successful and growing and building, but Jesus didn't? The reality is I think that we're seeing the world influence the church in this particular way that Jesus was addressing here. How we're doing it and how we're seeing it is that we as a church, and I'm talking about a church body are starting to allow the metrics of the world to determine our fruit. We look at the world's metrics, at the world's measurements, at the world's systems, bums, bank balances, and buildings. When I say bums, I mean bums in seats. Sorry, that's maybe a South African term. Maybe I've offended someone. I apologize if I have. We're not looking at the, you know what I mean? It's just by alliteration. Seriously, we've looked at people in church, how many? How big our buildings are, how f- many of them we have, and how much money we have in the bank as the measure of the success of a successful church. And we think that those things translate to fruit. We've taken metrics and made them fruit. You know, there's, you could probably write a book, in fact, an encyclopedia on all the churches that had fruit but failed. We've put gifting before character. We allow people who are great at doing something to build a brand. And in so doing, destroy the people. Instead of saying, let's slow it down. Let's build character. Let's make sure the character is there before we elevate the gifting. And I'm speaking to myself because we have to be careful of this. Now, there's nothing wrong with metrics, just to be clear. I'm not against, you know, having a spreadsheet and keeping track of things. I'm not against being organized. But when we make the metrics, the measure of our fruit, we have a problem. There is one fruit that Jesus cares about, and that is the fruit of obedience. That's it. Jesus' love language is obedience. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Simple as that. Finished. If you love me, obey me. What must you do then? How do we measure if we're successful? Are we doing what Jesus asked us to do? Do we love him? Do we love the people? And are we going to the nations? Now again, the nations for you might be next door, the street over. Are you declaring the truth of the gospel? And if we're obeying him, he loves it. But we don't like to do that, and instead we keep everybody in the church. We just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we don't send people out anymore. I want to be a sending church, not a staying church. I would, I'd love for more of us to go and plant churches and influence the nations and let God take you where he's leading you. And it's hard sometimes to say goodbye, I get it, but that's our mandate. And so the question for us is, in order to not lose our way, we never lose our why. If we want to stick to the way that God's called us to, if we don't want to lose our way as a local church, then we can never lose our why. And that's why we've put the why on the wall. So we can remind ourselves every single day that that's what we exist for. 
And I expect you as a local church and as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as the priesthood of all believers, to hold us accountable to that. And so when we look around us at the global church and we start to wonder, well, why is it and how is it that the church can lose its way so easily? You know, if you read the rest of Revelation 3, what you'll find is there's a, there's a scene that sort of Jesus paints. It's a picture of a church that's thriving. You know, the, the smoke machines are going, the lasers are going, the fire's coming out, the pastor's coming down on a zip line from the corner of the stage or coming out of the ground. It's a thriving church. But you know what's missing? Jesus. He's outside. He's knocking on the window saying, guys, you know, I'm here. You know, can we have church now? No, no, we've got machines and stuff. And I love machines. I mean, I really do. I think we must get some, just, just for the sake of it. You see, here's the point. The church will always lose its way when it's lost its Lord. I don't want to lose our Lord. And so the three points that God gave me for this morning, these are three truths that we need to settle. The first is this. The church is not a good plan. It's not a great plan. It's God's plan. Matthew 16 speaks about this notion of the church. In fact, the first time the word church is ever mentioned is mentioned in Matthew chapter 16, the first of two times in the Gospels, the only two times in fact. And it's by Jesus himself. In verse 13, he says this, now when, well, it says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and this is where things get crazy because this is where the Lord said, now you need to say this. And so here I am. There's a reason why this location is important. Okay, Caesarea Philippi is an important location. There is something about this location that Jesus has chosen, chosen not by accident, but intentionally to declare to the world that the church is the vehicle for change. Caesarea Philippi, if you don't know where it is, there's a slide here. It's, it's in the Golan Heights, southwest corner of Mount Hermon. Uh, it is in an ancient Roman city that really was well known for pagan worship. You can see that was, that's what Caesarea Philippi looked like then. If you look at it now, it's a bit of rubble and ruins, but there is a big cave. There's still some of the old, te- some of the old temples, but every single one of these temples here was dedicated to worshiping a false god. In particular, the main god that was worshipped was the god Pan. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever seen a picture of the god Pan. I just realized now I didn't put one in here. But just imagine with me, Pan is the god that's depicted as being half man, half goat. Does that remind you of someone? The devil, maybe. Whenever we see pictures of the devil, he's always half goat, half man, right? Horns, he looks crazy, looks pretty funky with his big beard. This was a place of idolatry, a place of pagan worship. But there's something significant even more than just that about this location. This location, according to ancient Jewish text and ancient near Middle Eastern culture, was the very location that God cast out Satan and his demons to when they fell. Mount Hermon was the location where they were cast out. They were sent down. Essentially, this is the portal between heaven and hell. Right here. And so Jesus, standing in Caesarea Philippi, about to announce the doctrine of the church, is doing this for a very specific reason. This is not an accident. It's not coincidence. It is intentional. And so he asks this question of his disciples. Who do the people say I am? You see, Jesus, standing here, he knows exactly what this location means. He's God, right? Not only that, he was Jewish, and so are all his disciples. And so in the context of what they've been brought up, they believe that this place is the center of evil. And so Jesus asks the question, who do the people say that I am? He's not asking it because he's insecure, 
right? He's not asking it so that he can be puffed up with pride. He's not asking it because he doesn't know who he is. And he's not asking it in that sort of semi-aggressive way, do you know who I am? He's asking his disciples, do people understand the magnitude of who's standing at the gates of hell today? The disciples miss it. In fact, Jesus even includes a little bit of a clue in his statement. Do they know who the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is throwing us back to Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, riding on the clouds. We'll read this a little bit later. But they miss it, right? And so they say, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, right, from the Old Testament. And you know, to be honest, they were right. Jesus is special. That's what they're saying. They're saying people recognize there's something about you that's different that you are a special person. And out of interest's sake, that's how the world sees Jesus. Okay, that's how they responded just like the world does. Yes, Jesus was a prophet. Yes, Jesus was a cool guy. Yes, he was a historical figure, but they don't see him for what he truly is. And so Jesus asks again. This time he's more specific. He says, but who do you say I am? Peter responds. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that's the answer Jesus was looking for. He goes on to say to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but this is of my Father in heaven. It's interesting. Sometimes we struggle with this notion and this concept of bringing the lost into the kingdom. Sometimes we preach the word to people all the time. Sometimes it's your own family. You consistently tell them about the Lord, and you know, no matter how much you tell them, they just don't get it, right? What this passage tells me is we can't argue people into the kingdom. You can't even, you know, apologize people into the kingdom. You cannot bring the most sound argument you can possibly ever imagine and expect somebody to hear what you're saying unless the Father reveals Jesus to them. And so I want to free you this morning. If you've been evangelizing to somebody and you feel like you're bashing your head against the wall, just when you think they're going to make a decision, they come back and say, actually, I don't believe, be free. Your job is to sow, God's job is to grow. We open the door, people have to walk through it, but God brings them through the door. Our job is just to tell people about who Jesus is. Stop trying to make fancy arguments all the time and just say, listen, this is who he is to me. This is the revelation I have. This is who God has shown me to be. Now I'm praying that God will show you too. And you put it on them like that. Believe me, people go back and like, what do you mean God's going to show me? Who's God? Like, why is he going to do it? And then they wake up one day and they're like, man, I get it. Everything that you said, I finally realize. Matthew 18, I mean 16 verse 18, Jesus goes on after this entire revelation is revealed and he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. The Greek word there is the word Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is using a very clever play of words here. The word Petros means little rock, tiny stone, even like if you can imagine a little pebble on the ground. And this rock, the big rock, is the word Petra, which means a giant boulder. Think about, I don't know, that thing in there by Fredericksburg, that big rock. Or what's it? Enchanted. I would say enchanted, but I'm getting shouted at. Last week I said controversy, and everyone's like, what's controversy? We don't even know that word exists. It's controversy in America. You know, this is a big rock. A lot of people, in fact, religions have been built on this one statement. What, a lot of, what some religions have ch- chosen to believe is that what Jesus was saying is that on top of Peter, Jesus would build his church. And so on the revelation of Peter, the entire church will be built. But Jesus is not saying that. What he's saying is there's a far greater rock, the big rock, the big rock that will crush every other rock on, on this earth. And that rock is the revelation that Jesus Christ is God. 
It's on that rock that the church will be built. Instead of us wanting to build the church on our own ideas or build the church on what we think is a good idea or, an, or, or a great strategy, what we need to be making sure is we're building the church on the divine revelation of who Jesus Christ is, not just a man. Not just some other little G God. Not just a good person. Not just a mechanism to earn funds or to go on mission trips or to do other things. But the Son of God. God Himself. When we build our church on that revelation, God is with us. And Jesus is basically letting His disciples know that this place is the place I've chosen to reveal this to you because I'm pushing back the gates of hell today. And what we realize through all of this is that the church wasn't just some you know, emergency plan that God had to think of at the last minute. What we realize is Jesus is God, and the revelation of Jesus Christ as God is the very foundation on which the church is built, which tells me that the church was always God's plan from the beginning. Let me help you understand a little bit more about this, and this is where things are going to get really crazy. The second point is the truth is not waging an earth, the truth. The church is not wa waging an earthly battle. It's a cosmic battle. And this is where things get really interesting. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, the arm of God, he says, for we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? 6.12. But we fight against rulers, principalities, powers of evil in the heavenly realms, right? Our battle is not with people on this earth. Do you know what the church is consumed with on a daily basis? We're fighting with each other all the time. Okay, we're out there bashing the world, beating the world down, wanting to find enemies in the world and make them the problem. The truth is when we are looking at man, we're, fo we're not focusing on the right enemy. We need to remember our battle is a spiritual battle primarily. It's got to be fought first in the heavenlies before we can fight it here on earth. But we do it the other way around. We want to fight here and we just let the enemy do what he wants to do. Jesus, in saying to Peter that on this rock I will build my church, he adds to that and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What he's trying to say is that from this moment onwards, on the revelation of me as the Son of God, I'm going to push back the enemy. He's not going to be able to stop us. He won't stand against us. As long as the revelation is right, the enemy is on retreat. And I want you to just sort of track with me for a second. If Caesarea Philippi is the literal portal between hell and this earth, and Jesus is saying in that location that he will literally push back the gates of hell. He's saying something significant. And this is going to give you an idea of the bigness that we're involved in when we consider ourselves to be a part of the global church. What Jesus is essentially saying, and this is where you've got to follow me, is standing on this pagan center of demonic worship. The kingdom of God has invaded. The kingdom of God has arrived. And so he's not just telling Peter and John and the rest of the disciples for their own benefit that the kingdom of God is going to advance. What Jesus is doing is putting the devil on notice. He is saying something into the heavenlies that will resound and is resounding to this very day. And he's reminding Satan that you are defeated. And it's in this moment that the church is going to rise up. That no longer will you be able to thwart the plans of my, or my plans, God's plans. Now you think to myself, well, how is it possible? You said like this time the, the enemy won't be able to stop it. What was happening before? For us to understand what God's perfect plan is, we have to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, you meet two people, Adam and Eve, the first two people on this earth. It's difficult not to get confused about it, right? Two people. We all know Adam and Eve. God gives them a mission and a mandate. He says to Adam and Eve, he says, take what I've built you in Eden, literally heaven on earth. Take what I've built you, go forth and multiply, subdue the earth. 
what God was saying is get out of Eden, okay, and take the kingdom which exists on this earth and build it everywhere. I want this earth to be my domain. The earth will be my footstool, says the Lord. Adam and Eve's job was simple. Take the kingdom of God to the earth. They failed. God kicks them out the garden. He gives them another chance. Same mission. Go out there, multiply, subdue the earth. They fail again. In fact, it turns into mayhem, murder. Lamech comes along. He's evil beyond comparison. And then in Genesis chapter 6, you hear the most evil thing ever. The demons, Satan, decide that they're going to leave heaven, come to this earth, and sleep with the daughters of man. They produce this demonic offspring called the Nephilim. God is so frustrated at that point in time, he decides I'm going to wipe humanity out. And so he sends the flood. But before he sends the flood, he warns Noah. Noah, listen, buddy. You've got 120 years. In fact, it's a little bit less than that by the time the flood comes. Go and tell everybody to repent. Come back to me, the one true God. Get back onto the ark and everything will be fine. Nobody listens. The flood comes, the earth is destroyed. Except for Noah and his family, they're saved. He gets off the ark. You know what God tells Noah? Go forth and multiply. Subdue the earth. Take the kingdom that Adam and Eve should have built, and now you build it, Noah. Well, that doesn't happen either, right? What happens? Humanity expands, it grows, and what do people do? They start to build pyramids. Pyramids to the gods of their own choosing. The false gods, the gods that have been kicked out of heaven. We build pyramids today. We put all sorts of things at the top of these pyramids. You think the Tower of Babel is unique? It's not. It happens all the time. We just look outside of these walls. There are pyramids everywhere, all over the city, worshipping different gods, foreign gods. We think Babel was about confusing language. It isn't. What God was saying is that I'm going to confuse everything. In fact, humanity, I'm going to give you what you've wanted all along. I've tried. I've tried everything. I've been gracious with you. But all you want are these foreign gods. So he says this in Deuteronomy. Well, Deuteronomy explains the Tower of Babel this way in Deuteronomy 32. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders. And they will tell you. When the Most High, this is the God of gods, El Elohim, gave to the nations their inheritance. Their inheritance? You think it's, oh, great territories. God's given us land. No. He gave them what they've been asking for. What were they asking for? When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. We can miss this. That word, their sons of God, is B'nai Elohim. It's the same word that is used in the book of Job, describing the heavenly divine beings that sat on God's council. It's the same word you'll find in the book of Daniel. It's the word to describe these fallen angels. What God said to humanity at the Tower of Babel is not you can have land, is that I will give you the gods that you've asked for, and guess what? They will demand the blood of your children. You will be sacrificing your children on their altar. They will ask blood from you, and they will be horrible taskmasters. The nations got what they asked for. And then you know what happens? You think, well, it's defeated now, it's over, God can't win, because now there's no more nations, there's no more people. How's God going to take this subdue and multiply? How's he going to do it if he's given everything over to these false gods? Well, God calls one man. His name is Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to call you out of one of these nations, Babylon, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. And what God was saying is, I will make my own nation, and guess what? They will be my people, and I will be their God. And through this nation, I will give them the same command I gave to Adam, the same command I gave to Noah, and the command will be this. Go forth, subdue the earth, and multiply. We know this because we sort of know what you would normally read and understand the Canaanite conquest. The nation of Israel was commanded to destroy all the nations around them. Why? Why did they have to destroy everyone? Because they were serving false gods. And so Israel was the hope. We know how that ended, right? They started to conquer. 
And then they started to worship the foreign gods that they were meant to conquer. And so it failed again. And that brings us back to Matthew 16. You see, where we're at now in this story and where we're at in history is so important for us to understand. You see, from Genesis to Revelations, God has in every scripture in between telegraphed his message to us. We've just missed it. Jesus, 10 chapters before this in Matthew 6, gives his disciples, they ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so what does he say? He says, well, this is how you're going to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That command was given to Adam, was given to Noah, was given to Abraham, was given to the nation of Israel. But guess what? This time, God's giving it to his church. And this time, we won't fail. And you know how I know we won't fail? It's because God has done something so unexpected. You see, he tried with humanity. He thought that we could do it. And he believed in us. But when we failed, God decided that he would send himself in the form of a man, born of a virgin, fully human, fully God. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to this earth and he died on a cross, a death that none of us would ever want to die so he could forgive our sins, so that he could claim us for his own inheritance and so that he could finally birth the church, a church that is led by a king, not a defeated king, a victorious king, a church that is led by the king of kings, a church that can say no weapon formed against us will prosper, a church that needs to remind itself who its God is. And it's on that note that I want to close with this last point. We have to remember, friends, that we are victorious. And so whilst I may have the problem of looking at the church and thinking it is defeated, I've got to fix my eyes on Jesus. Because the church is a victorious church. It is advancing, it's not retreating. And you know how we advance? Is we get off the love boat and get onto the battleship. We've treated church for far too long like the love boat. Everything's got to be comfortable Got to get the right drinks at the right temperature. Make sure we've got a good view. Make sure everybody feels special, right? We rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic all the time. That's what we do. God's saying, get off the boat, bro, and get onto the battle cruiser. We are fighting a war. I want you to be hopped up. Like if you want to get amped up about something, if you want to get amped up about being militant about something, understand we are fighting a heavenly war, friends. This war is waging in the heavens, but we are not losing. We're advancing. We are taking ground. John Thomas said this, which I loved. He said, every time we feel like the enemy's pushing back on us, he's not attacking us. He's actually just trying to hold on to what we're taking. Look at your lives that way. When you feel the attack of the enemy, remember it's because you've stepped further into his territory before and he hates it and he can't stop us. You see, Satan thought when Jesus was on the cross that he was winning. He thought and his little minions were running around, dancing around saying, we killed the son of God, right? We killed him. I need to realize that wasn't the greatest defeat in history. That was the greatest victory that's ever been told. Why? Because while Satan was celebrating, Jesus was stealing the keys of death in Hades. Why? So that the church could rise up. He says in Matthew 16 that he has given us the keys of the kingdom. That what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's the God that we serve. We are not on the love boat. We're on a battle cruiser. We're two or more present. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18, two verses later. It's again, he's speaking about the church, about conflict in the church. How do we deal with it? He says this, where two or more present, I am in your midst. Do you know the Greek word for church is ecclesia? You know what the ecclesia is? Actually, it's Roman legislative bodies. 
Jesus was using a picture of Roman rule. The occupiers that were coming into Israel had a principle. When we go and occupy a piece of land, we will send a group of people called the ecclesia and they will establish Roman rule. What Jesus was saying to us is that when the church comes, his church, the ecclesia comes, he will establish a kingdom rule. Where we go, the kingdom follows. Where two of us gathered in his name are, the kingdom of God is. And so when we move into the enemy's territory, we're not going alone. We're going with the kingdom with us. I want to close with this passage, Joshua 5, verse 13. I'm going to summarize. We don't have any time. I really am going to end up in five hours here. Joshua is about to storm the gates of Jericho. Verse 13. And what he does before that is he goes up to Jericho. I think he's sort of looking at the land. And ultimately, he finds this man standing before him. And the man's got a sword out. It's a big sword, I imagine. And Joshua says to him, are you for us or are you for them? And so this man responds to Joshua. Do you know you can go to the next slide? Yes. He says, no. I'm not here for you. Joshua, I'm not here for you, buddy. I'm also not here for them. This is who I'm here for. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. You notice what happens to Joshua. He fell on his face and he worshipped. You know every other time that somebody falls on their face before an angel, you know what happens? The angel says to him, get up. The angel doesn't want to be worshipped. But Joshua stays on his face. And then this being says something to Joshua which blows my mind. He says, take off your shoes for the ground you are standing on is holy. Do you remember Moses in the burning bush? God told him exactly the same thing. He said, take off your shoes where you are standing is holy. This angel, this being is none other than Jesus Christ. And what he is reminding his church this morning, you and I, is that we, when we get about our thing or their thing, we will lose our way. But when we make our mission about his thing, then guess what? Leading our charge is not a man. It's not an agenda. It's not a building. It's not how successful we are in the natural. It is the army, the commander of the armies of the Lord. His name is Jesus. That's who we're following. And we're going to take the ground that the enemy has stolen. Can I ask us to stand? I want to pray for us. And then we're going to worship. Thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. We are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making Him known in our city, the nation, and the ends of the earth. For more information on who we are, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook.